Well, I mentioned um, uh, that over the summer, we're working our way through the book of Romans. If this is your first week with us for a few weeks, or you're just joining us today, we're looking at Romans. Um, And uh, the book of Romans is really the letter of St. Paul to the church in Rome. And why are we looking at it? We're looking at it because Romans is the most explosive letter ever to be posted. It's changed the world many times throughout history, and if we'll get to grips with it uh, in our day, it will change the world again. And the central point of this letter is the revolutionary doctrine of justification by faith. The idea that we are not right in God's sight by our own efforts, but that salvation is a gift freely offered by Jesus, just for us to receive by faith. Let me give you two classic statements of this great doctrine of justification. The first is coming up on the screen just behind me now. This is a picture that I took from my book of common prayer. Um, This is from the the Church of England's kind of founding uh, uh, basis of faith, the Articles of Religion, of which there are 39. This is the 11th, if my Roman numerals are right, of the justification of man, man and woman. This was written 400 years ago when man meant mankind. And this is what the Church of England says. It says, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. In other words, our own good works, we can't deserve God's favour, it's a free gift. And then I love this second bit of the sentence, don't you? It says, wherefore that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. And I hope you think it's very full of comfort. I do. As more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. I suppose that's what these sermons over the summer are supposed to try and be. Homilies of justification to help us try and understand why this is so wholesome and so full of comfort. So that's how the Church of England puts it. And the second classic statement of this great idea that we're talking about, we sung last week in Fanny Crosby's great hymn that we sung, which says, the vilest offender that truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And that is absolutely revolutionary. It completely changes everything. And that's the central theme of the letter to the Romans, which we're looking at over these weeks. Last week, we saw the way that uh, that idea completely changes the way that we approach suffering and difficult times. And now we come to chapter six, and Paul is looking at the implications of this great truth for our morality and our ethics. Because, of course, the most obvious question in the world when somebody gets to grips with the idea of the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the freedom and forgiveness which he gives us, the most obvious question in the world is, hang on a minute, does that mean that it doesn't really matter what we do? If God is so loving and if God would just forgive us our sins, doesn't that mean we can do whatever we want? That's the most obvious question in the world. It's a question that someone always asks whenever they're thinking about becoming a Christian or whether we're doing the Alpha course. Someone always asks it on Alpha. Something like the vilest offender that truly... And someone goes, the vi- are we really saying the vilest offender can just be forgiven freely? What about Hitler? Hitler's always the great thought experiment that somebody brings up. And they say, well, are you really saying that if Hitler were to repent in his bunker, then God would have really forgiven him? Doesn't that imply that what we do doesn't really matter? Isn't that the obvious question? Well, that's the question which comes right at the start of chapter 6. It's the one which Paul anticipates us asking. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, so what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, should we just, if grace is so big, 
Shouldn't we go on sinning so that we can have more grace given to us to forgive us our sins? In other words, shouldn't we take advantage of God's forgiveness? And the point of chapter 6 is to say a great big no. Verse 2, by no means. We all know that the mafia gangster movie where, you know, the bad mobster goes into the confession booth and is able to just sort of say, bless me, Father, for I've sinned, and he confesses to all this horrific stuff that he's done. He says, well, go, and, you know, your sins are forgiven, and he carries on. We all know that's completely immoral. And this is the point of this chapter. It's to say that actually any understanding of the grace, the mercy of God, which results in more sin, is a misunderstanding. Anyone who goes, oh, well, isn't God supposed to be a God of love? And therefore the implication is, he's not interested in me living a holy life, is a misunderstanding of the love of God. By no means, Paul says, verse 2. Well, before we go any further, and before we get into looking at chapter 6, I think we ought to define our terms. What is sin? Because obviously, sin isn't a particularly popular subject of conversation. I don't think I hear you know, many people talking about that all often. We don't talk about it as a society too much, except perhaps in a kind of ironic sense, you know, when people talk about eating too much chocolate or something like that. Something like that. Um, but I think even in church, we don't talk about sin very much. I mentioned at the beginning, we have confession every week. Do you know, I have to catch myself sometimes. We confess our sins. I find myself introducing our time of confession, not by talking about, let's bring our sin to, to God, but by saying something like, we're going to bring to God our shortcomings, or, you know, some euphemism like that, our failures, the ways we've let God down, you know, soften the blow a little bit. It's quite a far cry from the old Book of Common Prayer, in which every week the penitent used to pray, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. I mean, the old generation used to know how to confess their sins, but we've kind of forgotten how to do that. Well, Paul doesn't shy away from the word sin. It appears 17 times in this chapter. And I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that word. When you hear the word sin. How would you define it? You know, I think automatically some people, there's a section of society which automatically assume what we're talking about is what people get up to in their bedrooms, which perhaps they oughtn't to. Um, we probably know that we're in the month of June, um, which in the great modern liturgical calendar is the Festival of Pride. And there's been a Pride uh, sort of events happening in Melksham over the weekend, we might have seen, and um, down at the Assembly Hall. Some Christians um, clearly weren't particularly happy about that, and um, put up posters over the top of, I think over the top of the, the pride posters, they put up their own posters uh, with Bible verses on them and so on. And this has provoked really quite a, a, you know, an outraged backlash on social media. Um, and so there's a bit of a controversy there. And I had a phone call from somebody who's involved with pride and we had a very interesting conversation about pole dancers and drag queens and that sort of thing. Now, I don't know what your view is of all of that. Um, clearly, the people who put those posters up um, felt that pride, which of course is a word which has never traditionally been associated with Christian virtue, pride being in itself one of the seven deadly sins, they felt that pride stood for something which was sinful. Now, 
I don't particularly think that uh, putting posters up and you know, spewing uh, outrage on social media is necessarily the most conducive way to have a constructive dialogue with people with whom we disagree. But clearly, they, these people were unhappy about it. Now, I, if I were to guess, I would imagine that they probably towards the right of the political spectrum, which tends to think of morality and sinfulness in kind of individualistic terms. And so therefore, with that which violates personal morality, such as the sanctity of marriage, constitutes sin. In contrast to those on the left of the political spectrum, which tends to think of morality and sinfulness in much more corporate terms. So it's much more concerned with societal and systemic and structural injustices like poverty and racism and climate change. You know, our society is kind of divided, isn't it? Because those who read The Telegraph tend to think that the people who read The Guardian are sinful because they don't care about the family. And the people who read The Guardian tend to think that people who read The Telegraph are sinful because they don't care about the poor. I don't know which newspaper you read, but I wonder which you think comes closer to the heart of biblical morality. Is the Bible, was Jesus concerned about personal morality or was he concerned about corporate and societal morality? Of course the answer is both, isn't it? Of course the answer is both. And I think our increasingly polarised society would probably be, do worse than to listen to what Jesus has to say on the subject. I can't think of anything that could unite our increasingly divided country except for revival, which I think we must pray for earnestly. Well, how would you define sin? The word appears 17 times in this chapter, but it isn't defined. And I think that's because Paul has already spent quite a bit of ink in the book of Romans already defining what sin really is in the first chapter. And in Romans chapter 1, he really says that the way to understand sin is in terms of idolatry. So instead of God occupying the number one spot in our hearts, in our devotions, and in our affections, and in our worship, something else has toppled him from his top spot, and something else has crept in and stolen our hearts, and is now the object of our devotion. He describes the way that society can slide into idolatry in chapter 1. Let me just read a couple of verses. Verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, well, we know who he is, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, literally in the Greek, icons or idols, made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So you see what he's saying? He's, He's saying that actually... The heart of sin is idolatry, worshipping something else instead of God. And we sort of think to ourselves, well, what kind of primitive society is Paul writing to that would carve idols in the shapes of birds and animals and reptiles? Until we realise that actually across ancient cultures, the most prevalent idols were, of course, to the gods of uh, prosperity and fertility. In other words, money and sex. And in 2,000 years, not a whole lot has changed about the capacity of the human heart to create idols. And the rest of chapter 1 actually... Paul goes on to describe the effects of this sinful idolatry in ways that would make both telegraph readers and guardian readers shift awkwardly in their pews. He defines sin in terms of personal sexual immorality. And he also defines sin in terms of societal economic injustice before concluding in chapter 3 
rather unhappily, that all have sinned, all of us. We can't simply go, well, we're the righteous people over here and those are the sinners over there. We think this way about morality, those people who engage in that stuff over there, they're the sinners. Actually, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, humanity is divided into two, not between the good people and the bad people, but between those who are in Adam, who follow in the footsteps of our original forefather and who are marked by original sin, and those who are in Christ, whose sin has been dealt with and paid for at the cross and who are now living a new life. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, that's the only way to understand it, says Paul. I wonder where we find ourselves this morning. Well, with all that said, back to chapter 6, where does that leave the Christian? Where does that leave us this morning if we are in Christ... Or maybe, maybe we're a Christian this morning, or maybe we're thinking about becoming a Christian, or maybe we're just interested in what Christianity says about our relationship with ethics and morality. Where does that leave the Christian who knows the God of love in relation to sin and holiness? How does the grace and the mercy and the free forgiveness of God not give us a license and an excuse to do whatever we want? How does the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God actually provide us with the energy, the inspiration, and the catalyst and the motivation to live holy lives? Well, Paul says that the posture that the Christian has towards sin is that we are dead to sin. Dead to sin. That's the uh, heading at the top of the chapter, isn't it? Dead to sin, alive in Christ. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we are those who have died to sin. We've died to sin. Gives the picture of being crucified with Christ. Verse 8, if we died with Christ. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean for us? With the short time that we've got left, four very brief pictures from this chapter about what it means for the Christian to be dead to sin. And here they are, thank you, Peter, that they're up on the screen behind me. Four pictures of what being dead to sin looks like for the Christian. The first is old to new. The first is that, that we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Look at that language of old and new in verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. But now, top of the page, verse 4, We've been raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too may live a new life. That's the Christian. The Christian's a new person. That's what June was talking about. The old June lived a certain way. Now, for the last 14 years, she's been a new creation. And the picture of that, of course, is baptism. When people get baptised, verse 4 says, this symbolism, or in verse 3 as well, we've been baptised into Christ's death. Verse 4, we've been buried with Jesus through baptism. Now, this is one thing which is in favour of of those who say that when people become Christians as adults, they ought to be baptised by getting properly wet. You know, they ought to get baptised by being fully dunked. And and those who make that case say that part of the symbolism, clearly here in Romans chapter 6, is that the the actual waters of baptism symbolise a death and a rising. So when you go down into the baptistry, I did when I was 18, that's what I did, and I, got, I got climbed down into it, and I got dunked. And the idea is you're actually going down, not just into the water, but into a grave. 
And then you're coming up out of the grave, symbolically, as a new person, born again. It's not that we can't sin anymore after that. Obviously we can. Is that right, June? I assume that, yeah, nodding head. I've definitely sinned since I've been baptized. It's not that we can't sin as new people. It's that, and we do, as we're going to see more fully next week in chapter 7, it's that the sinful life is totally incongruous for the Christian. It doesn't make any sense because that's not the person we are anymore. It's a bit like a player who is signed for a new team. What are you doing turning up at your old club for training? Hang on a minute. This isn't who you are anymore. You don't play here. You're supposed to be in this new season. And so when we are engaged in sinful behaviours in our lives, actually, that's just not us. We live a new life. That's the first picture. Second little picture, quickly. Slavery to freedom. Being dead to sin means being set free like we sing in that first song. Look at the second half of verse 6. So that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. If we've set, been set free, that means we can escape, doesn't it? It means we can fr- flee, not carry on in our slavery. You know, I think a lot of people think that freedom means freedom of choice, freedom to choose. I think my first taste of freedom was as a kid, spending my pocket money on Saturday sweets at the village shop. And I used to go down to the shop with my dad. I used to pedal down to the Beckford Village stalls run by Pat and John. And I used to go in there with my 25p. Total freedom. I used to go up to the glass counter and I used to look at everything. I go, I want one of those. And there was a little paper bag to fill it up with whatever I wanted. One of those, two of those, one of those, one of those. Absolutely free to choose. And I think that some people think that that's what real freedom is in life, but it's not, because actually the trouble is we don't choose the right, th- the right things in life. That's the trouble with idolatry. Augustine described it as our sin. It's like we've got disordered desires. We like the right things, but in the wrong order. And we, we choose the wrong things. Sin in that way is like a sickness, isn't it? Jesus says he's the one who's come to heal those who are sick. He's the great physician. If I'm sick, can you imagine if you did that at the doctor's? Imagine if I swaddled down to a spa medical centre and swaggered up to the pharmacist, up to the glass counter, you know, with some ailment. And I said, right, I want one of those, one of those. Can I have to get that jar down? I'm going to have two of those, please. And the pharmacist will go, no, no, no. If you're sick, you need to let me tell you what's wrong with you. You need to accept my diagnosis. I will tell you how to be free. And if Jesus is the great physician... That's what true freedom means. Third little picture, law to grace. Dead to sin means being under grace, not under the law. Look at verse 14. Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Not under the law, but under grace. Hannah and I have been watching This Is Us. Has anybody watched This Is Us? If you watch it after a series to binge, um, I can recommend uh, it's on Disney+. Plus. This Is Us is really good. Heartily recommend This Is Us. Well, in this week's episode we were watching earlier this week, um, one of the main characters spiralled into drug addiction. And after a while, it all went wrong for him. He ends up in court. He faces the judge. He's about to be sentenced. And he makes an impassioned speech to explain his circumstances. And the judge gives recess, and he takes pity on him. And the next scene, they're back in the room behind... And it's just the judge and the main character sat opposite each other. And he says, I should give you somebody who had the exact same thing as you yesterday. I gave him 15 years. Day before that, same thing, 10 years. This is what you deserve. 
but I listened to what you said, and I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to show you grace, but, and he says, I want you to look me in the eye, because the guy's looking shiftily at the floor, and he says, I want you to look me in the eye, I want you to remember this face, so that instead of when you're out there and you're tempted to make a bad decision and go back to your old life, you remember the grace that you've been shown and that you will live your new life. And he shows him grace. And so therefore, grace is the motivation to live a new life, not the license to go and do whatever we want and live our old life. Because we've been shown mercy, that very kind, and God the judge is like that. We look at the face of Jesus and go, how can I just take that mercy for granted? We're under grace, not under law. That is what it means to be dead to sin, to have freedom to live the new life. And the last little illustration is from compartmentalism to surrender. I think what this is saying is that we've got to give every part of ourselves to Jesus. Look at verse 13. Well, let's just read that whole bit from verse 11 again. Look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey his evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, I think there's such a temptation when we come to Christ to compartmentalise God and say that he can come into a certain part of our life, but not the whole lot. You know, there's that whole idea of, you know, we've got a God-shaped hole. We go, I'm I'm missing something. And and we hear that thing of, you know, God standing at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, Jesus will come into our lives and say, okay, I'll let Jesus into my heart. And he can fill this God-shaped hole that I've got, but he's got to stay there. I don't want him going all over the place. You know, if, if we've let him into our house... Well, he can come into the kitchen and eat with me, but I don't want him coming upstairs. I don't want him telling me what to do in the bedroom. Uh, He's not going to come in my office. I don't want him to tell me what to do with my finances. We compartmentalise and tell God where he's allowed to go. We don't offer every part of ourselves to him, but the trouble is that's not really Christianity. Let's... Let C.S. Lewis have the last word. Listen to this. Have you read Mere Christianity? Everybody should read Mere Christianity. In it, he says this. C.S. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs did the doing, and so you're not surprised. Of course, God wants to sort those things out in my life. He can do that. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, You thought you were going to be made into a nice, decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's the new life in Christ. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.